0: Today on Something You Should Know, the smell of Christmas is in the air, the smell is pine, and it is amazingly good for you. Plus, the world is full of passive people, and they often get taken advantage of.
1: I always say passive people think like this, that I know this well. I don't like conflict. I don't want to rock the boat. I probably won't change your mind anyway. However, if you uh, have reactive people in your life, they tend to roll over the top of you.
0: Also, this is the time of year to be thankful, and feeling those feelings of gratitude will do you well all year long. Plus, just in time for
2: the holidays, some great travel advice. The biggest mistake that people do is they open up their suitcase and they start putting clothes into the suitcase. That means that you're absolutely going to overpack and or forget something. The best thing you can do is start to put everything on the bed. All this today on Something You Should Know. Support for this podcast comes from Pluto TV. Need an escape? Drop into Pluto TV for a world of free TV. Stream hundreds of channels and thousands of movies and shows all for free. Yeah, free. No subscriptions, no fees. Binge on 24-7 channels of Narcos, CSI, Star Trek, and everything from hit movies to the latest news, comedy, live sports, and more. Download the free Pluto TV app for Android, iPhone, Roku, or Fire TV, and start watching now. Pluto TV. Drop in. Watch free. Something you should know. Fascinating intel. The world's top experts. And practical advice you can use in your life. Today, Something You Should Know with Mike
0: Carruthers. Hi, welcome. You know, ever since I was young, since I was a little boy, for as long as I can remember... In every home I've ever lived in, every year we have a live Christmas tree. And one of my fondest memories of getting a live Christmas tree is the smell. When you go to the Christmas tree lot, the smell of all of those trees, and then the the smell of the Christmas tree when you bring it home and your living room smells like pine. I've always loved that smell. And it turns out the power of that pine scent is really good for you. For centuries, people have gone to great lengths to have access to ancient pine forests because of their healing powers. And at this time of year, we're fortunate to have miniature versions of those ancient pine forests in the form of Christmas tree lots on virtually every street corner. The scent of pine, just the the smell of Christmas trees, has been found to reduce stress, hostility, and depression. A 15-minute walk through a local Christmas tree lot or a Christmas tree farm will expose you to some powerful aromatherapy the old-fashioned way. Be sure to take deep, slow breaths as you stroll through the evergreens and really smell that smell. The scent of pine can even help relieve chest congestion and soothe sore muscles. And that is something you should know. Would you describe yourself as a passive person, someone who lets things slide, you don't want to make waves? Or are you the kind of person who speaks up when something's bothering you? You speak your mind. I ask because, well, it matters. If you're a passive person, for example, how many times have you let something slide, not said anything, and then later wish you really had spoken up? Or if you're the other way, how many times have you said something and done it in a way that's caused more trouble than if you hadn't said anything at all. All of this impacts how we feel about ourselves and how other people see us and how we navigate through our lives. Dennis Adams is someone who's taken a hard look at this. He is, or or was, a self-described passive person, a former minister, who wanted to find a better way. He didn't want to be that passive doormat But he didn't want to be an in-your-face kind of jerk either. So he really did his homework and came up with a better way. Not passive, not jerky, but honest, direct, and respectful, which is the name of his book. Honest, Direct, Respectful, three simple words that will change your life. Hi, Dennis. So when you say you were a passive person, you mean you were someone who didn't like Rocking the boat, you didn't want to make waves, you kept your mouth shut, avoided conflict, that kind of thing?
1: Yes, that's exactly it. I I always say passive people think like this, and I know this well. Uh, I don't like conflict, I don't want to rock the boat, I probably won't change your mind anyway, so I'm not going to really tell you what I feel or think. But I'm going to be very respectful. But I'm not going to be honest and direct.
0: And when people do that, when they take that passive approach, what's the impression they leave with other people?
1: Well, I th- I thought early on the impression I was leaving with other people was that I was a peacemaker and I was a great guy, and people actually liked me very well. However, uh, if you uh, have reactive people in your life, they tend to roll over the top of you. And just a quick example, my brother's probably reactive by nature, in fact, I'm sure he is, and I'm passive by nature. And I remember one night when he called me and went up one side of me and down the other, I asked him if we could meet for lunch, and he said, sure. And I said... John, last night, before we start, I said, last night, were you honest with me? He said, yes, I was. I said, were you direct with me? And he goes, yes, I was. I said, were you respectful? And he goes, well, I have a little trouble with that one, but I knew you would take it. So that was a huge insight to me. And so I was able to tell him, you know, John, if you call and talk to me that way again, uh, it really jeopardizes our relationship. And I'll probably hang up the phone, which really shocked him uh, because he'd known me as a passive person for so long. But then I asked him, I said, was I honest with you? And he said, yes. I said, was I direct? And he said, yes. Was I respectful? And he goes, yes, you were. And I said, well, you know, I learned how to be honest and direct by watching you, but you could learn how to be respectful by watching me. What I find is people tend to fall either into one of the two camps, either passive or reactive.
0: People who are passive, who don't speak up when really they might really want to speak up, don't do it because they're afraid of something. They're afraid something's going to happen. What is it? What is it they're afraid of?
1: You know, I, th- I think it can be a multitude of reasons for folks. You know, I am a therapist, so I've, I've seen a lot of reasons. But for me, it was my fear of being rejected or not being liked. Uh, I, I always say to people, you can know if you're an approval addict if, if 100 people like you and one doesn't, and you focus on the one. And I think about a uh, workshop I did for about 300 people where there were 10 people in the back of the room talking during the workshop. And during the workshop, I paused and I looked at them, and a number of other people looked at them, and they got quiet. But after I started talking again, not only did they start talking, but they got louder. And I remember this was one of the, one of the first times I really had to challenge myself out of my passivity, because what I wanted to do was walk away and take it home. And if you were to ask my kids if I were passive uh, or reactive when they were younger, they would say reactive, because I took all that stuff home. But what I did is I I walked back in the door with a lot of fear and and anxiety, and I walked back to that table and said, "Man, can I share something with you folks? And they said yes. And I said, I want you to know when I was doing my seminar it was really uh, distracting. And when I paused and looked at you and a number of other people looked at you and you continued to talk and got louder, then it was really frustrating and I was upset. And I hope you don't treat other speakers this way. And I was able to walk out of the room and truly let go of it. And, of course, when I share this example in seminars, uh, people always say, the passive people always say, what did they do? But at that point, it wasn't that important to me. The important thing was I was leaving it where it belonged. And um, I was able to process it in real time without being rude, which is one of the concerns I had when I started this work. That is, I I think some of the assertiveness classes that are taught are really taught by what I call tops, ticked-off passives that are really telling you how to confront people in in an honest and direct way without being respectful, and really blaming other people for your passivity.
0: It's interesting what you said, that that passive people want to know how they reacted, because that's what passive people are worried about. They're worried about how people are going to react to someone standing up to them. But also, just out of curiosity, (laughs) how did they react?
1: Actually, uh, three people called me the next day and apologized, which was sort of the icing on the cake. But whether they did or didn't, I did the right thing. I call it coming from a place of strength and becoming a truth-teller. Now, let me say this. I think there are times when it's okay to be uh, passive or reactive. When I was managing the psychiatry department, because I wasn't reactive most of the time, uh, uh, probably 99% of the time, the one time I did react over an important issue, it really got everybody's attention. And I think that's important. And I think there are times to, to know when it's perfectly acceptable to have an unexpressed thought and to be go to the passive place. But I think the majority of time, if we can spend our time being honest, direct, and respectful, not only do we gain self-respect, but we gain the respect of those around us.
0: The problem, I think, for a lot of people, though, is it, it's one thing to have this conversation in this very un- emotionally charged environment of here's some advice on what you should do the next time this happens. But in the moment of when it happens, it's hard for passive people to step up because they think, I just want this to go away. I'll just wait this out and not say anything. And it's probably just as hard for reactive people to stand down, step back and not get overly reactive.
1: I think that in, in the work I do, I, I find that 80% of people in any given population are passive, and about 20% are reactive, and actually I have a, a easier time getting reactive people to move to the middle, because they'll say to me, wow, I, I really like this, I can do this, you know, I'm honest, I'm direct, and I said, well, the first thing you need to do is lower your intensity, because your intensity denotes that sort of reactive behavior, and so they tend to come to the middle, but to, to encourage a passive person, to come to the middle means they have to be honest and they have to be direct and it's very difficult. I know it was for me Uh, when I was walking back to that table in the pharmacy convention, my heart, I could see, I thought everybody could see my heart beating and you know my voice was like two pitches higher when I started to talk to them. But it's the right thing to do and to try to find that balance but I do think that reactive people uh, have an easier time coming to the middle, although they're really put off by passive people. Because passive people don't talk to them. They talk about them.
0: What do you mean by that?
1: Well, what I mean by that is, I'll give you a good example. I was doing a seminar up in Canada, and I had a two-day seminar, and the managers came in the next day. There were about 25 of them. And I said, well, let's divide up into passive and reactive. And it was about 80-20, 80% passive, 20% reactive. And so I asked the reactive managers, I said, you understand the concept. We spent the whole day talking about it yesterday. Uh, what would you like to say to the passive managers? And they really let them have it. They told them, "Why don't you just be up front? Why don't you put your cards on the table?" And just went on for about ten minutes. And then when I uh, asked the passive managers, it was a real eye opener because they said, "Yes, we would like to say something to the reactive managers," but in fact, what they did is they turned to each other and started saying things like, "Why can't they be nice? Why can't they just, you know, uh, say it, you know, in a nicer way?" And why, are, you know, why are they so mean and so angry? And, of course, the more they were doing that, the the more angry the reactive managers were getting. What I was able to do in that company was to help them to learn to communicate from the middle place, from the place of strength.
0: Dennis Adams is my guest. He is a therapist and author of the book Honest, Direct, Respectful. So, Dennis, what do you say to someone, passive or reactive? What do you say to them when they say, hey, look, this all sounds great and I wish I could do it, But in the moment, I can't. I mean, the the way I handle those situations is the way I handle those situations. I react that way, whether it's passive or reactive. It's just a reaction, and that's how I do it in that moment.
1: Uh, I think reactive folks uh, are so used to reacting without thinking. So for a reactive person, what I'd say is, remember, it's perfectly acceptable to have an unexpressed thought. Take a time out. Think about what the real issues are. I think for a passive person, it's choosing whether you want to stay in the victim role or you want to truly come from a place of strength. And I think it is harder for passive folks. because. Um, and one of the concerns I have is in a lot of the communication and conflict management workshops I went to, trying to find the middle place, really taught people how to uh, pull up their dump truck, load it with all the stuff they've never said to anybody, back up to them, and then pull the lever. And I think that's unfortunate because one of the things I had to realize early on is that I can't blame other people if I chose to be passive all these years. And so what I have to do is find some way to let go of that anger or that bitterness. And once I let go of it, purpose to be honest, direct, and respectful. It sounds simple. It is not easy. It was very difficult for me because I was in the cycle of being passive for a while, filling with anger and tension, then reacting And for that brief moment, feeling okay, but then 10 minutes later, feeling bad and going back to being passive. And I just kept going through this cycle. So it's simple, but it's not easy.
0: I would imagine it's easier to start with the smaller things than the bigger things.
1: It is. And and I think, you know, I remember one patient called me one day and said, I picked up the phone. He said, I did it. (laughs) I said, you did what? And he says, "I, I shared the message. And the important thing, I knew he got it because the important thing to him wasn't how it changed another person or it fixed the circumstances, although it has a better tendency to do that. His focus was, I was able to do it, I was able to let it go, I was able to come from a place of strength and be a truth teller.
0: It is interesting that there are so many, uh, according to your statistic, there are so many more passive people than reactive people.
1: Yeah, I think that eighty percent of people in any given population are passive by nature, and I think 20% of people in any given population are reactive by nature. And uh, it's not scientific, but I have tested this out with groups all over the U.S. and asking them to divide themselves up in large groups, and it tends to be that way. Typically, when I get called to a company to do some sort of an intervention, the people they're focusing on are the reactive folks. And uh, the real issue is, are the passive uh, employees who talk about the reactive employees but don't talk to them. And there are many passive managers that truly struggle managing people because they want to be liked and they don't understand that they have to balance between their productivity and their fair treatment of employees. They they just don't see it or understand that.
0: You know, it takes a team of people to put this podcast together. It's a small team, but we're still a team and we have to connect and collaborate somehow. So I'm really excited that I'm getting into Monday.com. Monday.com is an online management platform that brings teams like ours together to collaborate and communicate and work all in one place. So there are no more scattered documents or varying and conflicting software. Monday.com is the one place where your team's work happens. With Monday.com, there are no more of those mile-long email threads that I hate or countless vague, endless back-and-forth messages. Plan, manage, and track everything your team is working on in one centralized place. Monday.com connects with all the tools you already use. Slack, Dropbox, Zoom, Google Calendar, Gmail, and pretty much everything else. That means all your work in one open tab. Monday.com is totally customizable. You can drag and drop exactly what you need to build your own workflow. It works great for small teams, for sure, but I can see that if you have a large team, this would be so perfect, so productive. If you want your team and your workflow to work better, you have to try Monday.com. When your team is effective, nothing can stop you. To start your free 14-day trial, go to monday.com. Try it for 14 days free. monday.com.
1: Support for this podcast comes from Wild Turkey Kentucky Straight Bourbon Whiskey. Let's tune in to their one-on-one with Jamal,
0: a real bartender from Old Fourth Ward in Atlanta.
1: Making you old-fashioned today with Wild Turkey Bourbon 101. It just really stands up very well in a classic cocktail like the old-fashioned it has that perfect bonus wild turkey wild turkey distilling company lawrenceburg kentucky copyright 2020 campari american
0: new york new york never compromise. drink responsibly well i want to talk about this idea that it's your experience that passive people don't talk to reactive people they talk about reactive people that they don't talk directly to them they talk to other people about them and that maybe there's a reason for that maybe the reason is that that if you talk to a reactive person, uh, you may get a reaction that you're not going to like that's going to make things worse and blow up in your face. So, so what's the upside? What's the benefit for a passive person to talk directly to a reactive person when the reaction may be terrible?
1: Well, first of all, I think if enough passive people hold a mirror up to reactive people and help them to see themselves they're going to look for a better way to communicate which typically doesn't happen but I think for a passive person uh, what happens is that talking to people about a situation or somebody else typically doesn't help us to feel better about it it just sort of is a fertilizer for more self-doubt and uh, anger at the person and feeling in the victim role what Honest Director Respectful has done for me is it's helped me to deal with issues in real time and let go of them. And uh, when I was managing a department in this medical center that I work in for for five and a half years, from the very first day I walked in, I said, let's talk to people. Let's not talk about them. And I can remember one day walking into a room where there were five employees, and, and it was very clear they were talking about somebody in the department. And I overheard a little bit of it. And I walked in and I said, You know, how would you like to be the topic of discussion in a room with five other people? And, you know, just to help them to understand what was happening there. And over time, we were able to change the culture to one where people talked about each other to a culture where people talked to each other. And it truly changed the culture of that that environment, that uh, department.
0: I would think, and, and I want you to respond to this and react to this, that... Passive people, if they thought about it, would realize that the passivity, their reluctance to to be direct with someone about a problem or something that they're doing or whatever, that by by avoiding it, they're dragging the whole thing out, whereas if they were much more direct and respectful, but direct, they could deal with the problem, dispense with it, be done with it, and move on, and that in fact... By being passive, they're just causing themselves a lot more grief over a longer period of time.
1: Absolutely. I remember I had a physician in my office one day telling me that they were having a problem with one of our therapists and going on and on, and I I looked at the physician and I said, Have you talked to the therapist about this? Oh, that's right, we're doing that now, which I I found really uh, amazing that that a medical doctor at that level could not understand the concept but what I shared with the physician was you, you understand that if I go to this therapist and say this is how this uh, psychiatrist feels about you what is that going to do to the relationship and so I think that indirectness really creates more problems as you say than it does help to resolve those problems it would be better for the two people to get together and agree to disagree uh, and stay professional than it is if they are trying to indirectly deal with a person's behavior or problem.
0: What typically do you think is the reaction when when a passive person musters up the courage or whatever it takes to be honest, direct, and respectful to a reactive person? Do you think they respect the passive person more?
1: I, I absolutely do. I, I remember a situation walking into a, a room with a bunch of other people where a person was talking about a decision I made and was very angry. And so the first thing I did to them was I said, can we go to my office and talk about this? And they said, no. And so I used uh, an honest, direct, respectful skill, and here's what I said to the person. I said, have you already made up your mind about why I made that decision, or would you like some additional information? Which stopped them dead in their tracks, and in front of all the other people they said, okay, I want some additional information. Now, when I began to explain to this person why the decision was made and how it was made by the group, within 30 seconds, they were angry again and in my face, and so I simply looked and said, um, I'm a little confused because a minute ago you told me you wanted to hear uh, an explanation of how this decision was made, and now you're, you seem angry and are in my face. And the person said, I don't want to hear from you, and so I walked away, and person bone in my body wanted to go back and defend myself, but I didn't do it. Uh, I resisted that temptation. Uh, every person that was in that room came to my office that day and said, we really thought you stepped up to the plate and handled that very well. And, the, and the, the person that was creating the problem came to my office the next day and apologized for their behavior, and we were able to come to a resolution. So I do think uh, it builds respect, not only internal self-respect, but respect from other people
0: well if your statistic is true that 80 percent of the population is passive then this is a, a lot of good information for a lot of people to consider because as you've clearly shown being passive as well as being at the other end of the scale and being reactive both of those extremes have real consequences that aren't particularly good and there is a path to fix it Dennis Adams has been my guest. His book is Honest, Direct, Respectful. Three simple words that will change your life. There's a link to his book in the show notes. Thank you, Dennis. Like no other time of the year, holidays are travel time for many people. And as you know, if you travel at all, it can be a challenge, especially if you travel by air. But there are things you can do to ease the burden of travel, things that seasoned, experienced travelers have learned the hard way. One of them is Charles McPherson. Charles considers himself a professional traveler. For many years, he was a butler who now owns his own business where he trains and places people in the home management business, and he is the author of the book, The Pocket Butler's Guide to Travel. Hey, Charles, welcome. It's great to be here with you and your listeners. Thank you. So before we get into your meaty travel advice that people can use, You have an interesting story about how you came to be a travel expert, so let's start there.
2: So I'm ultimately a butler by trade, and so I worked for a very famous Canadian family that every Canadian knows and loves, and I traveled around the world with them, and you know, it really allowed me you know, to kind of learn some tips and tricks of how they traveled, and then ultimately, when I opened you know, my business 20 years ago, I have the only registered butler school in North America. I travel a lot around the world, training in hotels and dealing with private clients, and so I see travel all the time. And so when I take the experience of having been the butler and traveling on business, I really thought about there needed to be more of a book that could just give people really great advice on how to make it simple or simpler, at least.
0: So what are some of the big mistakes you see people make when they travel, That things you don't do because
2: you figured out that, <laughs> that, that, that that's not the way to do it? I think the biggest mistake is that people are not independent. And so they're relying on things to happen. So, you know, you're going to be taking the plane to go somewhere. You're relying it to leave on time. You're relying that they're going to either serve you something to eat or at least make something available for you to purchase. You know, you're relying on on all these kinds of services. And so the problem is, as soon as there's a wrinkle in the process, it becomes really frustrating. And I have learned that the more independent you can make yourself so that you're not reliant on people, the easier and the more enjoyable any type of travel is.
0: Well, I love that because there's always a wrinkle in the process. There's never a trip that doesn't have a wrinkle.
2: Exactly. And so whether it's because of a delay or because, you know, if you have a food allergy, for example, and even if you've ordered a special meal on the plane, sometimes the planes make mistakes. And so order your special meal for your allergy, absolutely. But you need to have the backup plan in your carry-on so that if all else falls apart, you can still be happy and function. Or you know, what are you going to do if you get halfway around the world and, you know, your credit card isn't working because of whatever reason, Not you know, at least you have to have some cash, or you have to have a second backup credit card. So all these kinds of things make life just so much easier when you're on the road and, you know, we're all anxious when we're away from home.
0: You know what, what I've done, it, it works for me, is, you know, I probably used to get more upset when I would travel when things went wrong, but I've just resigned myself to the fact that on any trip, something's likely to go wrong because there are so many possible things that could go wrong. I don't know what's going to go wrong, but chances are something's going to go wrong. The plane will be delayed. The baggage gets lost. Something's going to go wrong. So I just resign myself to it and expect it. And then if it doesn't go wrong, I'm delightfully surprised. And if it does go wrong, (laughs) well, my expectations have been met.
2: So I think that's a great way to put it. And one of the things that I do when I travel is I kind of say, you know what, the reality is they're usually, you know, whether you're doing a three-hour drive to the other state to go to grandmother's house or you're taking a three-hour flight somewhere warm, you know, or something, I try to make the travel day as a whole day and just give into the fact that there could be a traffic jam, there could be a flight delay, I could lose my luggage, and that you know, chances are if I just allow myself to think about the whole day as a travel day, then any time that I get at the end is a bonus, but at least I've prepared for it. Right,
0: exactly. So let's get into some specifics of things people can do to make travel better, easier, simpler.
2: So you're trying to get ready for a trip. I think the most important thing is you have to kind of think about, well, what am I doing on this trip? And the biggest mistake that people do is they open up their suitcase, and they start putting clothes into the suitcase. What that does is it means that you're absolutely going to overpack and or forget something. The best thing you can do is start to put everything on the bed, lay it all out, and then think about what are you wearing on each day of your trip and kind of start to put those items to one side of the bed and all of a sudden you'll realize that there's a lot of stuff there that you don't necessarily need or you're missing something And then you can start to look at, well, how can I mix and match that I can reduce a pair of pants or only need one sweater rather than two or three shirts rather than four? And it actually becomes quite interesting. And when you do that, so that's the first thing is just kind of reducing.
0: Well, there's that old advice about when you pack, you know, pack your suitcase and then put half of it back because you're never going to need it.
2: It's interesting because statistically, most people don't use half of what they bring. And so especially today when we have to pay to ship luggage, it's expensive. And so think about do you really need it? Or, you know, if you're going on a shopping trip, then maybe you go with an empty suitcase so that you can come back with things that you're going to buy that you can then fill in your suitcase and wear while you're on your
0: trip. Yeah, well, that's always the problem when you buy stuff on a trip and then you've, got, you, you've packed your suitcase to the hilt and, and now there's no place to put anything to bring back.
2: I've found myself, unfortunately, many times having to buy a second suitcase where I am somewhere around the world exactly for that reason.
0: Now, I noticed that you suggest people pack their own toiletries, even if they're staying at a hotel, because you say that the, the stuff at the hotel is not so great. Uh, but I, that surprises me.
2: Well, you know, it depends which hotel that you're going to, but generally, believe it or not, the quality of the products at the hotel are not generally as good as what you're using in your own home. And, you know, it's a cost to the hotels. And so they're looking ultimately for, you know, it to be the most cost effective. And one of the things that I do, because I travel so often, I actually keep my toiletry bag always packed and full so that when I am traveling, I just throw it into my suitcase. But... I personally, I keep soap and shampoo and shaving cream and, you know, all those kinds of things in there because you never know what you're going to find or the bottle is so small, there's really not enough, you know, for you. And I just personally think it's better to be, again, independent. And some places, you know, don't, they forget to put it in your room or whatever. So I just, again, I love being independent.
0: Do you own or rent your home? Sure you do.
1: I want to just
0: bring that sense of community and naive arrogance back to the genre. Hey, music lovers, that was Youngblood, and I'm Allison Hagendorf. And finally, we have a show for us, for fans of rock and alternative. This is where we celebrate the newest songs from our favorite bands and the newest songs from the bands you need to know. Let's go. Rock This with Allison Hagendorf. Follow and listen for free on Spotify. Well, and I read recently that a lot of hotels, and not just you know bargain basement hotels, but some major hotels are rethinking that whole, you know, little bottles of stuff in the bathroom like shampoo and conditioner and hand lotion and all that. And now they're putting it in these these big containers that they bolt to the wall of the hotel bathroom, and uh, you'll pump it out that way. So I like your idea of bringing your own stuff because, yeah, it's it, it's probably better. And and talk about the hotel experience, because I don't think people give a lot of thought to that. I mean, w- what's important at a hotel? What's not important? That kind of thing.
2: So, well, when you get to the hotel, I think the most important thing that you need to do is you need to make friends with the concierge, because they really are the key to the city. So they know how to tell you how to take the subway or how to take the bus. They know, you know how to take the best route if you're going to be driving somewhere. They know where the movies are in town or the theater or the museums. They can help you get into a restaurant. So a concierge can be really to your advantage. And the other thing is I remember once being in Paris, and I wanted to go to this museum, and I asked the concierge about the times that the museum was going to be open and so on and so forth. And I remember the concierge saying, you do know about the secret door, don't you? And I said, what are you talking about? And he said to me that there was this second entrance to the museum that most people didn't know about, and so the lineups were, like, much smaller. And so that was, like, such a great tip that you don't necessarily find on the Internet. And so I think making friends with the concierge at the hotel really can help you have a better experience in the city where you're traveling.
0: And what about uh, in a hotel, just like... I've heard things like, you know, the, don't touch the bedspread or the remotes because they're germy and filthy. I mean, what about the room itself? What, 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 uh, and you, you have that suggestion about if it's stuffy and, and not very humid to fill up the bathtub. And talk about
2: that. Well, that's something that I do all the time, actually. So, you know, unfortunately, a lot of hotels now, you can't open a window, and that drives me nuts. And in the wintertime, particularly when it's dry... Uh, and there's no humidity in the air, the first thing I do is I turn on the hot water, you know, close the bathtub, fill up the hot water in the bathtub, and I leave the bathroom door open because then the humidity comes into the room, and I find that that makes a big difference. But, you know, the example of, you know, the bedspread, that's one of the first things that I, if there is one that I take off and I don't touch it throughout the rest of the trip. But the remote control, I have, you know, little cotton, you know, disinfectant swabs that I keep in my toiletries bag. Uh, and I use one of those and I actually wipe down the remote control. Um, it's one of the few cuckoo things that I'm really particular about when I'm in a hotel room because they tend to be, you know, very you know unhygienic.
0: Well, because no one ever cleans them. I can't imagine the maid goes, oh, I forgot to clean the remotes.
2: Yeah, but you know what's fascinating is that it's actually something that's dirty in our own homes. But probably, I think the difference is when it's your dirt versus someone else's dirt, it's two different kinds of things.
0: Exactly. My germs are okay. It's it's that
1: exactly. Other it's that
0: unknown guy that was in that room last night that creeps me out totally
2: creeps me out. So when so you that, <laughs> So when ahead. you
0: when you fly, what do you do if anything different or, during the flight
2: that that makes your trip better than mine? I think the difference is that I have not relied on the meal. I have not relied on the entertainment. I mean, I have sometimes sat in a seat and the plane is full and I, you know, we take off and I go to turn on, you know, the little screen in front of me to watch a movie and it's not working. So now, great, I'm going to sit here for the next six and a half hours with no screen to look at and I didn't bring any reading material. So again, I have a little something to eat in my bag. I always have a book or I have, you know, a Kindle or some kind of something, you know, electronic to be able to read. So I try to have all those things ready so that no matter what happens throughout the flight, there's, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm well organized, you know. And the one thing that drives me nuts is always remember to take a pen because, you know, filling out those customs cards, you know, if you're going abroad, we're always looking for a pen. One thing that I, I think
0: people don't think a lot about is, what if I get sick? What if something happens on this trip? So let's talk about that.
2: So if you have certain medical conditions, it's really important, I've learned, that you carry what your conditions are and you have all of your doctor's information and and, and, uh, contact details because there's nothing worse than when you are not feeling well abroad and the doctor who you are seeing says, well, what medication are you taking? And you go, well, I don't really know. It's my doctor who keeps track of all of that. That's a problem because it's harder for them to treat you. So I've learned, having seen unfortunately doctors around the world, to carry a list of all of my medications. If I have any particular issues, I make sure that my doctor, you know, explains it to me so that I can clearly explain to another medical professional what my issue may be. And also, if I was going somewhere knowing that that you know I have a particular situation that I'm dealing with, I might even look into. Who could I see if I have a problem when I get to that destination?
0: Something important that you point out that I think a lot of people don't realize is, you know, in this country, if you have a medical emergency, if there's something really wrong with you, you can go to an emergency room and you will be seen. That's not necessarily true in other countries where you need to pay first or you need to show proof of the ability to pay before you'll ever see a doctor.
2: Exactly. And so you have to be, you know, I remember once, you know, being in China and I had, which I didn't know was at the time, to have an operation on my finger for an ingrown fingernail. And the doctor wouldn't operate until I went to pay the bill. And so I go, I, I didn't have any cash. I said, do you take American Express? And they said, yes, but thank goodness. And I go to the counter and he says to me, it's $45,000. I thought, oh my God, I was freaked, thinking to myself, my credit card will never take this. I'm going to have to call home to get my mother to wire me some money or something. And then I didn't realize, of course, with the conversion, it was really only a couple of hundred dollars of of what I needed for this operation in in comparison. But you need to be able to pay because they don't have to treat you the way they do in America.
0: Yeah, I remember, I I don't know, 10, 15 years ago, People always would go to the bank and get traveler's che- <laughs> travelers checks before they travel. Uh, and now, you know, not very many places take traveler's checks. I know they still make them, but not many people take them. Not that many banks dispense them because people rely on their debit card and their credit cards to get them through the trip.
2: But I think you still need to have cash with you. You can't say, well, you know what, I have a credit card and I have a debit card. Because sometimes when you go somewhere, there isn't an ATM machine or the ATM machine is broken. Or, you know, I was um, in China, going back to China again once, when I went to use my ATM card. And it didn't take, my, that particular machine didn't take my kind of ATM card. So I couldn't get cash. So cash is king when you're traveling. And so, you know, or sometimes you only allow so much on a daily limit. And you need, you know, you want or you need more. So, again, get cash ahead of time. Make sure your credit card company knows that you're going to be traveling somewhere. And make sure you know what your limits are of what you can take. You know, those will also really help you.
0: Yeah, I think that advice of notifying the credit card companies that you're traveling is really good advice. I know a lot of people, including me, have been caught by surprise when traveling and, and I forgot to tell the credit card company I was going on a trip and they declined the charges because of their enhanced security. I was far from home. They see a charge that's, you know, 10 states away from where I live. They think, hey, maybe that's fraud and they decline it. And then you've got to unravel that. And, and what about travel insurance? Do you, I've never purchased travel insurance.
2: Do you? I don't personally buy travel insurance for my plane ticket. Uh, or my trip, although I know people that haven't have been very thankful. But the one insurance that I always make sure that I have is medical insurance, no matter where I go, because that is something that, you know, when you, you, you might feel fine at the time when you leave, and you go halfway across the country, you know, maybe your insurance company doesn't cover you in that state or, you know, that country. And so for me, medical insurance is, is the one thing that's not negotiable when I travel.
0: When you fly, um, where do you sit? Do you have a favorite seat on the airplane? And if so, why? I do.
2: (laughs) So, well, first of all, my favorite seats are always on. So if you're facing the front of the aircraft, looking towards the cockpit, I always like to be on the right-hand side of the aircraft. And for me, the reason is because quite often the flight attendants aren't very good at closing the curtains of the galley. And when you sit on the left, the galley's on the right, and so the light comes across, and it keeps me awake. So my kind of my thing for me, now, of course every listener is going to start going on the right-hand side of the aircraft, is I like the right-hand side because chances are the light doesn't get in your way. And, you know, I tend to, uh, like a window seat personally, I tend to be a little bit at the back of the cabin um, so that I can kind of see what's going on. So that's kind of my, my thing.
0: What else, what other things do you either find people don't understand, or you see them make the mistake, or things you do that that other people don't, uh, just anything else?
2: You know, we all have to go through security. There is no way around it. So usually, you're going to have to take your electronics out, any kind of metal of any kind. And so, to me, I think the most important thing in your carry-on is to kind of have all your cords, your computer cords or your computer or your iPhone or whatever, I try to keep all that together so that when you pull all that stuff, it's easy for you to pull it out of your bag. You know, I try to always wear slip-on shoes so that I can get in and out of my shoes really easy at the airport through security. I think that's the number one irritation that people don't think about is – When they go through security, there are liquids and and computer things, and all that stuff has to come out. And when you're not ready, A, it slows you down, it slows the line down, and people behind you get irritated. Well, it is
0: interesting to see uh, when a new traveler or someone who's not paying attention gets up to the front of the line and, oh, I have to take my computer out or uh, I have to take my shoes off, and people get really irritated, because it does, it slows the line down. So that's some great advice. Charles McPherson has been my guest. He is author of the book, The Pocket Butler's Guide to Travel, and you will find a link to his book in the show notes. Thank you, Charles. Be well. Bye-bye. Every November in the United States, we celebrate Thanksgiving, and the holiday season in general is a time to give thanks. Yet expressing gratitude may be something we should do every day, Research on gratitude has shown that being thankful leads to overall well-being. And you can be thankful for a specific person, a pet, a thing, or just being thankful for being alive. It doesn't really matter. Grateful teens are less likely to abuse drugs and alcohol. Men and women with heart disease who practice gratitude have been shown to have significant improvement in their heart health. Thankful people are more likely to demonstrate self-control. Being thankful improves your self-esteem, and you'll be less likely to compare yourself with others. And gratitude improves your resilience and mental strength. So it's worth taking time to think what you're grateful for. That's the podcast today. I'm Mike Carruthers. Thanks for listening to Something You Should Know.